Good morning. Uh, my name is Ryan James. I'm one of the elders here. Just, uh, my privilege this morning to be able to share out of God's Word and uh, specifically out of the book of Esther in chapter 7 is where we're going to be focusing today. So um, if you don't have a Bible here with you this morning, um, there's a Bible on the uh, back table and you can feel free to take that, uh, take that home with you. Uh, so uh, one thing that um, has come to mind this week, um, I've any Matt Damon fans out here? All right. All right. There we go. So you might think about, you know, the Bourne movies, think about Goodwill Hunting, um, probably a few others. Um, one, of, one, of my, one of my favorite Matt Damon movies, maybe isn't, you know, it's not a series or anything, but uh, any We Bought a Zoo fans in the audience? Hey, there we go. Um, and there's, there's one, one scene in particular that um, is just a really, really great scene. And I won't ruin it, the movie for you if you haven't seen it, because I recommend you go look at it. Um, but there's this one scene where, where Matt Damon is the dad, and, and he's got two little kids. And he is showing the, his two little kids uh, describing the moment at the place that he met their mother. And um, so the, it's out at a restaurant. So the, he and the two kids are standing there at the restaurant. And, 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 he says, and he says, wait. And the kids stay inside the restaurant. He sort of walks outside the restaurant window and, just, and describes to them what was happening. And he said he was walking down the sidewalk, and he stops. And he sees this, this woman sitting at the restaurant, and he says, maybe out loud, maybe to himself, you know, this is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And so he's telling the kids all this. And then he said, at the moment, he said to himself, I've never, you know, I've, I've never just walked up to anyone like this before and just started speaking with them. And so I said to myself, all I need is 20 seconds of courage. 20 seconds of courage. And so he describes to the kids, he, he, he pops around into the restaurant, and he stands close to the table. And he said, okay, I'm scared to death. She's sitting right there. I'm as close as I'm, I can be to her. And I'm about ready to quit and just leave because I'm scared to death. But I said to myself, I've still got 15 seconds of courage. And then he, then he stepped up closer, and he looks at her and says, you know, what, why is it that an amazing woman like you to even, would even talk to someone like me? And she looks up, and she says, why not? So anyway, it's, just, it's a great scene. I'd encourage you to, turn, to go look at it. But the, I, I share that. Um, today because of, of this idea that, that is sort of the theme of chapter 7, but in some ways it's the theme of the whole book of Esther, in that, in that there are things in life that we need to have just some moments of courage for as we, as we walk into it. And, and in particular, I wanted to, to share today. So the, the big idea for today, um, I wrote it down so I didn't forget, and so if you want to write it down so you want to forget, it's up to you too. Um, but the, the big idea for today is that we can trust God to bring about justice, making right where there's wrong, to bring about justice. We might have to do something to demonstrate that faith. All right, did you catch that? We can trust God to bring about justice. We might have to do something to demonstrate that faith we might need 20 seconds of courage to step into that sort of faith and demonstration. So I have a quick example of that. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, we were 
painting, uh, or actually, we had agreed with had a contractor to come and paint the trim on our house. And so it was, it was Tuesday morning, two weeks ago, and the, it was kind of craziness outside our house. There had been a pressure washers there the day before. The, con- the um, carpenters had come to replace some rotten out. Uh, trim boards that morning. The painters were arriving a couple hours later. There was, there was probably 10 people running around outside of our house doing various things, and um, it, was, it was kind of chaotic. And, not, and just to add to the little bit of, of uh, you know, craziness, is not all of them spoke English. And so, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to communicate um, with, with all of that going on at the same time. So there was a lot of chaos. So the painters had started going, and, you know, I looked at it, you know, it looked pretty good. I walked over, and I looked at the paint bucket. And during the time of, of selecting and agreeing to the contract and all of that, Steph and I had talked about using a, um, uh, a satin sheen on the paint. And I remember when I talked to the contractor that he had told me they always default to the flat sheen. And so... I, I took a look at the bucket to check the color. That was the thing I was mainly concerned about. And I saw on the label of the paint bucket, flat. And I thought to myself, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. And so in that moment, I had all these things flooding my mind in the moment. Okay, well, the, the color was right. So... That was, that was good, right? Checkbox number one. The color was correct. If I say something to these contractors, it might mess up their whole plan for the day. It might cost them another day to come back if they have to go and replace the paint. And you know what that means if you ask somebody to come to your house and it's sort of your mistake that they're correcting. Well, that's going to be another, whatever is delayed, it's going to be a cost to us. So that was one factor. I'm thinking, well, what if I just don't say anything at all to anyone? Because the color is right. Can you really tell the difference between a flat sheen and a satin sheen when it's on the siding of a house? I mean, the trim of a house? I don't know. I still don't know. I, I don't I don't know. I don't know. And But the thing is, the reality is, I was rolling the dice that Steph would never notice <laughs> whether there was satin or flat because right now it was only me who had this information. And I could have potentially gone to my grave with the information that it was flat and not satin. So I have this. And so I took, took step number one and, and I said to the, said to the painters, you know, I see this as flat. Uh, is, how big of a deal would it be for you to go and swap out for satin? And he's like, well, we'd have to go to the paint store. We'd have to, you know, we have to wait right now and not get started. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, everything. So anyway, that was my, that was my conundrum. And, well, um. I'll, I'll wait to, to finish the story later. But the, the reality is that in that moment, I was facing the question of, am I about to step into this, this thing that is going to rock the boat for the next either 
hour, two hours, probably a day perhaps, am I going to step into it or am I just going to stay right back here and watch it play out? And in some ways, my only risk point was Steph noticing, but maybe even she might even notice a few years later, what if the paint starts to look differently, you know, a few years in versus the first day? And all of a sudden she says, that does not look like satin. So those were all the things running through my mind. So as I've shared that story, I know that, that you, guys, you guys might have situations like this. And so I'm just curious if you have any examples for me that have been coming to your mind where you have stepped in it a little bit, made a mistake, or, or had a situation where, where you knew that, that if you were going to say something, it was going to rock the boat. Whether to put off a problem now whether to put off a, and, and solve a solution later. You needed to do something now. So anything coming to mind for anyone? I'd like you to just, just yell it out to me. Anybody have anything come, in, come to their mind? That you need 20 seconds of courage to step into. Nothing at all. Anybody on Facebook? I've got a, I've got a, I've, I've got a, uh, no example. So everybody just, always, just always immediately has truth flow from their mind, even if there's implications. All right, well, we can have another conversation about honesty when this, um, when this sermon is over this morning. But if you, if you think of anything along the way, um, share with me. Because um, even though, so ultimately, I, I decided, I, I went in the house and I just told Steph. I mean, I I am, I've, I've done wrong enough times in the midst of our marriage um, to know that that wasn't the place to go. That, there was too much. The risk was way too high for not that big of a reward. If it cost us another $100, $200, $500, whatever it was going to cost in that moment, um, we don't get our house painted that often. Um, it needed to be, I needed to be transparent. And so I chose, by God's grace, to step into that conflict. To ha- and, and it did, it was potentially, I mean, she and I agreed on it. I had dropped the ball and not communicated that to the contractor. I had dropped the ball. And it was about to cost us um, time and potentially money and just pain in the neck factor for these contractors that were there trying to, trying to do a job. Um, and, I, and I will say for them, we, we made the change. Um, I had a gallon of paint in the garage that they could start with. They went and got the replacement paint. Um, they actually gave it to us on their own dime. And ultimately, they couldn't have been more gracious about it. And so um, God, and even in this little situation, God, I, I, in some ways, I trusted God. And he brought through justice. He made right where there was wrong. I trusted him in that. And so that's where we... We kind of pick up the story with Esther today. And so we're going to take um, just a, a couple of minutes and watch a clip of the movie One Night with the King, um, which is a kind of a, a, you know, a theatrical um, version of the events of Esther. So we're going to go ahead and watch that uh, for a moment right now. The night draws late. Once more, I ask for your petition, my queen.
my petition. My lord. Is that you allow me to finish a story? One that I began many nights ago. The story of Jacob, my lord, does not finish with Mary and Rachel, for they go on to have twelve sons. And like these twelve pillars that surround us, they became the pillars of a people. Surely. Surely you do not delay an army only to finish a children's tale. favor in your sight. Let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. You demand of me your life and that of your people? My dear girl, I know not of your people. You have yet to tell me who they are. Had we been merely sold as slaves, I would have held my tongue. This Haman wanted our blood, my blood, the blood of Jacob. Your Jacob, your Jacob was given a new name, Israel. As you was I. You, Esther, did you? Not Esther. My lord. Hadassah, but Abihel, daughter of the tribe of Benjamin, child of the Most High God. All right, well, as, as you may have... Um, uh, come along there. That was the king, that was Haman, and that was Esther. And as um, they meet this moment of, of climax where Esther is being asked by the king what she requests, because over the course of the last several, several days, um, sh she and the king and Haman have had this interaction where, where um, Esther is in the position of asking for her to save her life and the lives of her people. And Haman and, and Esther and Mordecai is another character that was in that, um, it's, it's in the, this book and it's so critical to this book. Mordecai raised Esther as a child, from the child, even though she was his cousin. And it's all come to a head in this moment. It's the plot to where Haman has um, snookered the king into is to kill all the Jews. And so Esther had had a previous moment of courage a couple days before this scene where she asked the king to, um, to have her presence. And this is what came to it in a meal and then a second meal, which is what you just watched. And so in this situation, Esther had an incredible moment, another incredible moment of courage that took place. And so I want to turn in your Bibles to chapter 7 of Esther. Uh, verses 1 through 6. And 
this, this scene really um, brought to life in a, in a descriptive way what happened in verses 1 through 6. I'll read it right now. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And so they were drinking wine on the second day. And the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, An adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. So here we have um, this moment that Esther faces, that, that she, the moment where she reveals that she is a Jew. She reveals that she is asking the king to go against a decree that he has issued. And so why is it that this requires a great amount of courage? Why is it? What, how could the king respond in this situation? He's asking her for whatever she wants. And Esther is stepping into this moment of tension and saying, and saying, please save me. Please save my people. So in a moment, the king finds out that she is a Jew. And, so, and, and then also in that same moment, he finds out that he has been the one that has been um, complicit with Haman's scheme to kill all the Jews. And so, as she enters into this conversation, she risks the king responding pretty badly. He could be embarrassed that he was complicit in this way and just simply not done anything and carried out the plan to kill all the Jews as it was planned out. He could get angry just for the mere fact of her bringing it up to him and and kill her. Or he could kind of pull a Vashti on her. Vashti was, was the king's first wife that for, for perhaps what the king viewed as not a big reason at all, set her to the side and requested a new queen, which is how Esther came onto the scene. And lastly, one that, one that I think is, is perhaps most intriguing to think about, Esther at any moment in time could have stepped back not done anything at all. The king had asked her to make a request of him, anything up to half the kingdom. I have no idea how much money or possessions or, or property that would entail, but I can only imagine that it would be hugely significant. And if you're sitting in Esther's shoes, where the options are, you know, be killed um, or have the king respond badly and probably kill me, um, or he goes along with everything I'm suggesting, or I get half the kingdom and all the money and possessions of half the kingdom. I might take, I mean, I think the temptation would be there. It's sort of like I had the option of not doing anything, just kind of wait and see. Let's see if she notices over the course of the next days and weeks and months with the paint. What, let's just see how it plays out. I'll take my chances with half the kingdom. 
I think I'm a better politician than the king. We'll see if he can actually kill us once I have the possessions of that. And so we have, um, we have all of that going on, uh, but ultimately, at the end of the day, Esther took on this 20 seconds of courage, and she revealed the truth to the king. She had this 20 seconds of courage <clears throat> and, and was honest. She was fully transparent even when it was scary, it was difficult. She didn't know what the outcome would be. She stepped into that interaction. All right, moving on to um, the next part of the chapter, verses 7 uh, through 10. This is coming right on the heels of Esther's um, revelation. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, which is a big deal for that king after we've seen here the last uh, few weeks, um, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face, which would mean arrest him to take it away. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, Hey, a pole reaching to the height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. This was built in, in the description of the previous chapters, um, when um, at the suggestion of Haman's wife in response to his bitterness uh, for Mordecai. A pole reaching up to the height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Things didn't turn out so well for Haman. So a, a couple of things that are happening and going on in this chapter that, that stand out a little bit. As soon as Esther had made this revelation about herself and her people, the king takes off and, and has no doubt, I assume, sort of this moment of, of reflection of, of, you know, going back to the, you know, is, you know, what should I do? Should I... How should I respond? How am I feeling about this? How should I respond? He goes out in the courtyard and probably has a moment and figures out what he's going to do. Or maybe when he comes back in, he doesn't quite know what he's going to do, but he did come back in. And the Haman, Scripture uses the term falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. So you can imagine he was angry because the Scripture says he was angry and he maybe didn't know quite what to do to save face himself and to deal with the situation. But as he comes back in, he sees Haman in some position that in some way looks compromising with his wife, the queen. And so in that moment, even if he was wavering, he comes back in and he says, and he, and he says, it returns from him and Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And that was like the straw that broke the camel's back. Haman was probably just begging 
Esther. He probably had, he probably didn't have any, you know, other motive in mind at that moment because he was sensing that things were going south for him. I really doubt he was thinking about a relationship with Esther in that moment. But the king comes back in and sees that, and it's like it just stokes his anger even further and says to himself, it's like, even if I was thinking about letting him off the hook, no way. Send him um, to the gallows. Arrest him. Yeah, in that moment, um, they covered his face, so they arrested him. And then the second thing is Harbona. Good old Harbona. You know, you got to believe that Haman wasn't the most liked person. You know, just following his habits throughout the book of Esther, he's extremely prideful. He's extremely bitter, especially as it had to do with Mordecai. So you can only imagine, for like the help around the king's house, um, he couldn't have been a popular character. And so then in that moment, I love that look where you can just imagine Harbona saying, hey guys, I, you know, Haman and his wife kind of conjured up this idea and they built this, they built this gallows over, you know, planned for Mordecai. I just wanted to bring that up, you know, just, just saying. <laughs> I love that. I, I, can just, I can just imagine that, uh, that happening. And the king was like, impale him on it. Done deal. Done deal. And so, yeah, this, this, this did not turn out well for Haman. And, and ultimately, as we, we, sh- we shouldn't have been surprised. As we look throughout the, the scripture of, and the, the wisdom literature of the Bible, there's just so much that would suggest that, that a prideful spirit does not bring about good things. Proverbs 16.5 um, says, Everyone who is arrogant at heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Certainly applies for Haman. Psalm 7, 15 and 16. They, meaning the prideful and arrogant, dig a deep pit to trap others, then fall into it themselves. Haman's definitely saying that. The trouble they make for others backfires on them. The violence they plan falls on their own heads. Proverbs 11, 8. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. And lastly, Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he, that, he, that will he also reap. And it's not on your screen, but that finishes up. The next passage actually says, The one who sows his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So Esther and Mordecai both had opportunity to take vengeance themselves. They, they had access to the king. In the, in the final parts of the previous chapter, the king was celebrating Mordecai. And so no doubt, um, Mordecai had access to the king. Haman led him around in a parade. So Mordecai had access to Haman, and Haman was the, the real you know, nasty character here. Either Esther or Mordecai could have taken vengeance into their own hands. 
They had opportunity. They could have done it violently. They could have done it by engaging him more directly. Um, But they didn't. Esther took a methodical approach that, as we, we read about earlier in the book, it was prayerful, it was reflective. And as, as we read about in this chapter and kind of saw depicted in that movie scene, she took a thoughtful approach to communication. She, she unveiled the truth in a way that wasn't re- reactionary. It wasn't responsive and um, in a, with a poor tone. It was, it was really honorable and really trusting. And at the end of the day, she didn't know how it was going to come, come, um, come out in the end. But she demonstrated a trust in God to bring about justice, to bring about a right that had been wrong. But she had to do something. She had a role. And it's been the, it's been the theme it's been the theme of this whole book. There are, there are three, three stories. You know, we've, we've just watched Haman get what he deserved, and he ended up on a pole. Um, you know, you can read about on, on, uh, online, you know, how that was actually done. I won't go into the details uh, today because, you know, it was, he was getting, you know, right on a pole. Um, so, you know, go, go take a look. Um, but there, there are really three stories throughout Scripture that stand out. There may be others, but, but um, three came to mind to me um, that, that sort of reflect and sort of have hints of this story um, and the broader theme of Scripture. Uh, in, in Numbers chapter 21, um, there's, this is back in the day of Moses and the nation of Israel. It's before they crossed into the Promised Land, um, there was a situation where the Israelites were, were disobeying and were grumbling. Um, shocking uh, for, for them, right? Um, they were. And God got angry. Um, he, um, he, was, he was upset. The, the final, um, and I should mention first, the, the final phrase of this passage in Esther chapter 7 is, is that the king's wrath was subsided. All right, the king's wrath was subsided, and so as we as we think about these these stories that I'm mentioning, think about Moses um, with the nation of Israel. God became angry with the nation of Israel because of their disbelief and their disobedience, and so He sent out fiery serpents to bite them and and cause them to sickness and die. And so the people were like, "Wait a second, no way, Moses, can you show us?" that, can you talk to God and get rid of this? And so God, or Moses pleaded with God, and God said to Moses, put a brass fiery serpent on the end of a pole, and when people see it, it'll represent their sin, and those that repent will be forgiven. And with that, God's wrath was subsided, and it was subdued. Fast forward to Esther, we see the same thing with Haman. We see Haman representing sin, representing conniving, prideful spirit. And he, at the king's request, was placed on a pole, representing sin, making right what was wrong. And then, fast forward even further, we see ultimately 
in, in Philippians chapter eight, uh, verse eight, chapter two, verse eight through 11. It says this, "And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we've got three stories that show the impact of sin and show God's response to them that Ultimately, justice was delivered. With the fiery serpents, in the disobedience of the Israelites, the fiery serpents bit the people or engaged the people or, or whatever those fiery serpents were doing to cause them sickness and harm. God's justice in that situation. But ultimately, as Moses pleaded and God said, you can put one of these on a pole and when repentant people see it, they will be healed. So justice was delivered, grace was offered, and God's anger was subsided. In Esther chapter 7, we see a situation where, where Haman was placed on a pole, representing sin, representing this conniving, prideful spirit. And so he, justice was given there. The grace the king offered to the people of Israel, he had a choice. He could have allowed Haman to go on and continue his, his, his killing of all the Jews, but he didn't. Justice was delivered to Haman. Grace was offered to the, the Jewish nation, and ultimately the king's wrath was subsided. And then as we move forward with, with Jesus on the cross, we have a parallel between the sin that we have in the world and we have committed with that of Jesus being put on the cross. Justice delivered, grace offered, and God's Wrath meant for us was subsided. So the, the question, you know, as we, as we think about this story, we all want to get on board with Esther, right? She was courageous. She was eloquent. She had an amazingly big role to accomplish because she was a part of preserving this Jewish nation so that ultimately Jesus could be made away for. But the question that I want us to wrestle with just a little bit today is Haman. And do I see any parts of Haman in me? How, how much do I practice the habits of Esther and how much do I toy with the habits of Haman? Haman had the position, he had the authority, and he had the desire to manipulate the situation. And he did it. He did it so that ultimately the Jews were going to be a nation that was eliminated and annihilated. Do we ever take opportunity to manipulate and to... to adjust things to our desire when we have that position of authority, we have that position of influence. 
I think maybe, maybe we do at times. And so that's one you know, significant point of, of application for us is that we don't just get clouded by Esther's you know, wonder in this situation and the, the great choice that she made to follow through and to be faithful and to show the trust that ultimately God would have justice, but that we would ask ourselves and say to ourselves, I have some characteristics of Haman, and I need a Savior that, that has already delivered justice with Jesus on the cross. He has offered grace to me, and, and if I respond to him with saving faith, as we're going to watch people be baptized tonight, and as, as I have received him as Savior, I need that Savior because I have tendencies of Haman. I've, I've committed sin, and I need God's wrath to be subsided against me. Because when we sin, when we have sinned, before Christ, his, his wrath is, is upon us. So as we, as, we, as we reflect on this whole story, Esther and Mordecai, they, they had a big problem. And it required resolution. It required justice. It required a wrong to be made right. It required right to come in where there's a wrong being made. And, and so as we, as we reflect on this, and as we, as we put this into action in our day-to-day lives, I, I want to, to challenge you and, and ask you, you know, where is it that we need to step forth with action, with 20 seconds of courage, to bring about rightness where there's wrong? Where is God nudging us to trust him, trust him to bring out justice? But what is that he's asking us to do? You know, I, I felt, you know, the, the paint story is a little bit silly, kind of. But what if I was standing here today? Of course, I wouldn't be sharing it with you, obviously, and maybe that would have been the problem. Had I not gone inside and been transparent with Steph when I realized that there was a problem. I most definitely wouldn't be sharing it today from this spot because the lie would be ongoing. I would be taking my chances on making myself look preferable by not having potentially caused the chaos of those moments with the contractor, with Steph, with delay, with cost, all those things that I didn't know ultimately what the outcome would be. And so what parts of our lives are we tempted in that regard to not be transparent, to, to not have the courage inside of a marriage, inside of a relationship, inside of a, a work scenario where, where information needs to be communicated. There needs to be a discussion of something. I don't know what it is in your life, but there's something 
that's living underneath the surface that needs to be resolved. Justice needs to be brought. And where are we in being a part of that, in stepping into that, rocking the boat a little bit? Sometimes that just means being honest, sharing a little bit of a difficult truth, and trusting God, trusting the people around you that would be honorable and that ultimately the truth that we can trust God, that he's working in all of this, um, that, that he is working behind the scenes that Paul and Eric have talked about for several weeks. He is working in this. He was working in, in Esther's life. He was working in Mordecai's life. He's working throughout the action, even of Haman and the, and the king, as they, were, as they were planning the demise of the Jewish nation. And so, as we, as we wrap up this morning, we think about Esther's approach. She was, she was prayerful. She sought wise counsel. And she had courage, even in those moments. And I thought that movie clip, you know, framed it pretty well, where the, the, king, was, the king was a tense guy. You know, I would assume most kings are. Maybe it wasn't exactly like the movie showed. But, you know, the, the routine was if somebody went before the king, that he would kill them or they would be killed. So, I mean, that's a, I think that defines a tense guy, right? <laughs> if he's comfortable, comfortable with that as the routine. And Esther had significant, um, uh, significant courage to go take care of the situation. And she spoke eloquently. She was reflective. She wasn't reactionary. She planned her steps. She had two banquets whether she was scared or whether she was planning and utilizing the cues from the people around her, everything was intentional. And so as a church, what would it look like if each one of us individually took the Esther approach, that we were quick to seek wise counsel, that we were quick to pray thoroughly? You remember Esther and I think chapter 3, she, she sought the community to pray and to fast for the situation. And then ultimately she spoke thoughtfully and she spoke with intention. What if we did that in all of our situations? What if we did that? If we didn't know the answer to difficult problems, what if that's how we handled them rather than some other way? And I know that is a temptation in my life to not do it that way. I described one of them a little bit. But those things we face, and that's why I don't believe that nobody had an example like that. We face those things day in and day out. When something goes awry, do I go through all the right steps to make sure that the right people know and we can resolve it properly? God is able to resolve it properly. And so as you face those things, Think about Esther's approach, seeking wise counsel, praying, and communicating really thoughtfully. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I'm grateful for today. I'm grateful for uh, Esther's courage and her example. I am grateful that in, in my little example that, that God put on my heart to be transparent and honest. And um, I, I pray that in 
whatever situation it might be going on in, in the minds of people sitting right here or online, um, that, that they might have the courage, 20 seconds of courage, to enter into a conversation, a discussion, to resolve a marriage, to resolve family discord, to, to turn a new page in parenting, to share Christ with someone that needs to hear it, to, to invite someone to church that you would never expect would come. But God, that, that we would trust you to bring about justice, but that we would be sensitive, recognizing that we might have to do something to be a part of that process. Just thank you this morning for the time we've had together and to look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.